Well, good morning. If you're here visiting with us this morning, welcome. Uh, if you're unaware, we've been going through the book of 1 John, and this week we are starting with the first 10 verses of chapter 3 of 1 John. I apologize if you can't see the whole of whatever's up on the screen. I, I didn't take into account the fact that we'd have this in the way. So, welcome. This morning we're going to do something a bit different. This morning I want to first, I want to go out and start off out in left field and talk about John in his day. His day as a disciple. And then I want to go out into right field. And out in right field, I want to talk about us and our expectations. And then I'm hoping I can bring those two together, those two ideas together, and help us to bring our lives into a better understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus. Today is Veterans Day. We celebrate it every year on the 11th of November. Most of you probably already know that. But it's worthy of our pause and remembrance because it's a day when those who have served in the armed forces are honored and thanked for their service. You see, when we want to understand what it was like to be in the trenches during World War II, we look to question the veterans that were there. We listen to their stories. I enjoy listening to their stories. I enjoy listening, sitting and talking with veterans. I have fond memories of reliving days on the naval ships in the Pacific with Carol Tolson. I remember reliving the flights in Vietnam on a helicopter with John Davids. And there was a gentleman by the name of Ralph who served during World War II. Ralph was, he was on a plane. And as the plane was landing, the plane began to fall apart. And as witnesses watched this plane fall apart and the wreckage, they were shocked to discover that he was among the debris that came falling off of that plane during its landing. And yet he lives and survived to this day. If you, if you don't know him, Ron, I think, can uh, help you better know who Ralph is. How many of you have either, either seen or read Unbroken? It was a book by Laura Hillenbrand. Unbroken is the story of Louis Zamperini. And when Laura Hillenbrand wanted to learn that story, she spent countless hours on the phone with him, talking to him, listening to him, asking questions so she could take her readers into the mind and emotions of the man who would not be broken. When a dramatic change in history occurs, we turn to the women and the men who lived through those changes to learn what it was like. The story of Jesus Christ is the story of the real men and women that were around him who lived through the most remarkable change the world has ever known. Now change is a the theme that we hear a lot about, especially during an election cycle. Just like we saw last week, change in government, change in policy, change in who has control. But the change that was brought about by Jesus Christ was far more fundamental than any change that a government could bring or even technology could bring. It was a change from darkness unto light. It was a change from death unto life. It was a change so big that we who have grown up in this, we have a hard time conceiving of what it used to be like before Jesus Christ came, when people were just grasping about in ignorance for a knowledge of God. This change did not come gradually. 
No, this change was not evolutionary. It was revolutionary. Remember, the Old Testament scriptures were written over a period of 1,200 years. That's a long time. It took 1,200 years to write the Old Testament scriptures. And then there had been nothing new added to those scriptures for 400 years. No prophet had spoken. No miracle had been been performed. No sign had been given. God had been silent for 400 years. And then suddenly, like a thunderstorm, comes the explosion of light and revelation in Jesus Christ. Suddenly, the grace of God is being seen daily. People are being lifted out of the despair of their ordinary lives. He's feeding the hungry. He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind and life again from the dead. This revelation from God came in such a rush that things before unsaid and unimagined would happen. This psalmist would say that the Messiah would open his mouth and utter things kept silent from the foundation of the world. And Paul wrote that the mysteries of God were hidden in Christ from the beginning of the ages. The Old Testament scriptures had been written over 1,200 years And then they stood as a monument. And suddenly, in just 60 years, the New Testament is written. In just one generation, everything is new. And everything old is obsolete. The most exciting time spiritually that this world had ever known had just occurred. And the men who wrote about it and lived it, well, they must have been very exciting people. They must have been great people to sit and talk to. When I first learned that I'd be uh, speaking today, I thought about John. And I thought about him like those veterans, people that had been a part of something special. Because John was a veteran disciple of the Lord Jesus. Remember, John at this time that he was writing was perhaps the last person living to have known Jesus personally. You know, John went to a church not unlike ours. This is a, uh, an image from the city of Ephesus. It's the library there. But John went to church in the city of Ephesus with fellow believers not much different than us. You see, they were made up of mostly Gentiles. And the New Testament was almost fully written. So their Bible is very much like ours. And sitting there with those believers was John. And like you and I, those people never met Jesus. All that they knew about Jesus came from those letters and writings that make up the majority of the New Testament. And right there in the midst of them was John. As he writes, he is perhaps the last man living who knew Jesus of Nazareth personally. That's what made John different than everyone else in that, in that church in Ephesus. It's what made John different than everyone else in the world at that time. Because the majority of the apostles, possibly all of the other disciples, had passed from the scene. Everyone else, they came to know Jesus secondhand, just like us. But John, 
He had lived those four years of ministry that changed the world from Jesus. He had been there on the Sermon on the Mount was preached. He had been there when the Mount of, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had gone into the upper room. He was at Gethsemane, and he was at Calvary. To you and me, they're words on a page. But to John, they were a living memory. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a person like John in our midst coming to Redeemer Fellowship? Try to picture him. I mean, he's an old man now. He uses a walker to get around. He's, he's kind of gaunt. He's not nearly the man he used to be. He wears that same suit every week, and it's two or three sizes too big on him now. It just kind of hangs on him. And although his body is frail, his mind is clear, his voice is strong, and his outward man is perishing, but his inward man is still being renewed day by day. And he can tell you everything about Jesus and the heroic events of the days of the Lord. His eyes would pierce through you and take you back to a time as he speaks like it was yesterday. Right here in our midst is a man who personally knew Jesus, a man who actually walked with him. There would be a Palm Sunday service. Imagine, you're planning on sending out flyers all throughout the neighborhood, invite people to come in. Who should we have speak that Sunday? Some young man who expounds upon the prophecies of Zechariah? Or do you want to listen to John, who was there? who laid his clothes on the donkey that Jesus sat on, who could describe the smell of the animal and the cheers of the crowd as they walked into the streets of Jerusalem. We're having a Monday Thursday service. And what do you want to do for that service? Would you like to listen to a few men put together the shadows of the substance? Or would you rather listen to John, who was there, who could describe the meal that they shared the bread that was broken and as it passed around that table. There's going to be a Good Friday service. And we could invite some mildly articulate speaker to come in and do a passable job explaining the doctrinal nuances. Or we could listen to John, who was there, who went into the courtyard where the beatings began that fateful day and followed Jesus with Mary and the other women all the way to Calvary. He was at the foot of the cross. He could speak to Jesus as he hung there. He saw the life of Jesus leave him as he gave up his spirit and he witnessed the blood and water pour out of Jesus when that spear pierced his flesh. And what about Easter Sunday? I mean, we could rejoice with one another and sing songs about the resurrection or we could listen to John who was there that glorious morning when Jesus rose from the dead, we could run with excitement with John as he outruns Peter all the way to the tomb, getting there, and the joy just welling up inside of him. He's excited, and he peers into the tomb, and he sees the grave clothes lying in that dank, empty tomb. And then we listen as he's taken aback by Peter, who rushes right in to get a closer look at the empty tomb. And we would be able to eavesdrop as John describes to us the conversation that he and Peter had 
on their way back to tell the others the exciting news. John lived it. John has a lot to say about his experiences, and it comes right off the page in his writings. So let's take a look now and see what John wants to tell us. In light of what he had seen and heard and handled. Because when John opens his letter, he explains that he writes to us so that we may have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now let's head out over to, uh, to Wrightfield because we're going to consider the weight of this passage. Think about those words for a few minutes. Consider how difficult those words are. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. When I read these words, I see an expectation, an expectation of me that is perfection, a life without sin. So one of the biggest struggles in my life is that I'm a bit of a perfectionist. You see, when I see a project, I often see the flaws in it. I see the flaws and I want to make them right. I, I, I want to do it right. The work that I do requires me to be very precise. I have to be as accurate as possible. Otherwise, it could cost a lot of money to our customers. In fact, if I'm off by just a few percent, even just one percent, it could cost customers half a million dollars. It is important that I am as accurate as possible when I, make my, when I provide that information. And I, ha I have a tendency to, after the fact, take the information that I had before and after, and I want to find out how far off was I? How far off? Is there any reason why I was not spot on? Is there any reason why I missed the mark? What do I need to account for next time in my prediction so I'm not so far off? This is a skill I'm constantly trying to hone and perfect so that I can provide the best service to my customers. And the expectation that I have of myself 
is that I will get it spot on next time. Another example of how I'm a perfectionist is at home. I like to have my, cut, my lawn cut fully. You know what I mean. You, you, you look at the lawn, you got some strips that are uncut. And much to the dismay of my two older sons, I typically check the lawn for these types of things. And uh, there have been times where they've had to go back out and mow again. But if I'm going to do it right, why not make it perfect? I've set my expectations high for my sons, even when they cut the lawn. And it's unfortunate because I live with a bunch of imperfect people. My children have not always been, they're not always those little angels. They're, they're, they're not perfect. I've had to correct them a few times. And, and my wife, while she's practically perfect, she still has a flaw or two. And like Mary Poppins, it would never dare to show. But the reality is that I have failed at being perfect. I don't meet my own expectations for myself. My Christian walk is imperfect, and it has led to a lot of restless nights. How could I miss the mark? What did I do? You know, while studying for this message, I was convicted of the sin in my life, and, and it just shed light on how far from perfect I really am. It's not easy to have a high standard for yourself. During my spare time, I enjoy reading sermons and listening to the sermons. One of those that I like to listen to, or I've read, I can't listen to him because he wasn't around when they were recording, but is John Wesley. Now, Eric, I understand he's not a Calvinist, but even though he wasn't a Calvinist, he did change the English world with his preaching. And he took the importance of faithful service to the point of what he called the doctrine of Christian perfection, preaching that real Christians do not sin. Now, Wesley was a, was a tremendously organized man. He learned that from his mother, Susanna Wesley. And reading his sermon number 40, he just had numbers for his sermons, so organized was he. That sermon number 40, one of his seminal sermons, he wrote, we fix this conclusion, a Christian so far is perfect, as to not commit sin. Think about the weight of that. If your salvation was gated on whether you sinned after having accepted Jesus as your Savior, would you still be going to heaven? Isn't that what we read in verse 6? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We all have expectations for ourselves, and those expectations drive our relationships. Our expectations for our spouses will leave us unsatisfied and broken. Marriages will become shattered and homes broken because we expect perfection from our husbands or our wives. You know, they keep secrets from one another to try and hide those imperfections and it drives a wedge between two people and it ends in resentment and anger. If we have a bad day, we don't hesitate to take it out on those people that we should be loving the most in our lives. 
Isn't that what happens? We expect that we can be mean and short-tempered with our spouses, and they should just take it. It doesn't matter if they did something wrong or not. We can be pleasant and cheerful to everybody else, but one look at that person you're supposed to unconditionally love and forget about it. We have certain expectations of them, and they have expectations of us, and they need to conform to it, don't they? We aren't alone in this. We aren't alone in this, folks. My marriage goes through its ups and downs. My marriage has had wedges that resulted in resentment and anger. My expectations have let me down, and my wife's expectations have let her down. But it doesn't stop there, it does it. No, we have expectations for our children. I, I talked about some that I have for my own children, and that often leads to disappointment. We raise our children and we try to correct them and to teach them only to watch them fail. And our results are those scarring phrases. I, didn't I tell you that? A child will leave their home, their parents, and feel like they can't do right in this world. And so what do they do? They turn to drugs or alcohol or sex or suicide. We wonder what we've done wrong or how we could have loved them better when really we've just demanded the highest standards for our children and it ruins them. And children, you have expectations of your parents too because you live in a world of entitlement. You think you're entitled to the latest video games or the electronic devices and even if you watch a baby, you're trying to feed them as they're learning to eat solid food and they're rejecting the nutritious, valuable food that you provided to them because they got a taste of something sweet and that's all that they want anymore. Their expectation is that that is all that you are going to give them. We gather with our friends and we often have unspoken expectations of our friends. And when there's a violation of that expectation, it ends in hatred and bitterness. At work, our bosses watch over us. They, they have expectations of us that drive us to work longer hours, miss time at home with our families. And then we begin with the backbiting when there's a coworker who doesn't really do as much as we do. You know, our expectations of our coworkers. We have expectations of the elders here at Redeemer. And those expectations have led to an onslaught of criticism. They, that criticism will tear people down rather than build them up. That criticism will ultimately ruin a church and the testimony within the community. And we also have expectations of God. When the doctor tells you it's cancer... You demand an answer. Why me? Why am I going through this? I lived a good life, God. We want to make our lives perfect. And so people come to church on Sunday mornings to try and get that check in the box. If a child passes from the scene before the parent, the questions abound and the divine logic behind the event is questioned. How could God let that child die? What possible, re what possible sin could have been so grievous that would cause that child to die? 
Why would God allow this? We see the evil in this world and we ask, where is God in all of this? Why would you allow that earthquake to destroy that island? That man killed so many people and where is the justice in it? I realize that not everyone will look at this the same as me. You may not have that perfectionist mindset that I do, but I imagine that one of those things on the list is you. Your marriage may be 100% perfect. I don't know. Your children may behave like angels. I don't know. You may be socially acceptable and the model employee. You may never question God and what happens in your life. But I can guarantee you're one of those. You're one of those people. Ask yourself, which one are you? Where do you have that perfectionist expectation of others, including God? So what do we do with these two concepts? Our expectations and striving for perfection and John, as he writes to us from his experiences. Take a moment and think about John. Remember, he walked with the only person to live a perfect life. John witnessed Jesus in the flesh and fellowship with him. He had common life with Jesus. And now he has written to us to help us understand a little bit more about who we are to God and how to have fellowship with him in light of expectations. Notice in verse 4. God knows our frame. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God knows us. God knows we are sinners. We are people who haven't lived up to the expectations, the standards that God has set. God knows who you are and why you are the way you are. And in fact, God gave us that law so that we could understand just how imperfect we really are. We are not perfect no matter how hard we try. We practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There was only one who came and was perfect. There was one who walked on this earth and was without sin. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ came. Praise the Lord, because if not, we would still be lost, imperfect sinners. If not, our end would be destruction. If the Son of God had not come, we would not know how we ought to live. And listening to John in this passage, we can begin to understand how we ought to live. We can begin to understand who we are. Earlier, I mentioned John Wesley and his doctrine of Christian perfection. And how in one of his sermons he said, we fix this conclusion. A Christian so far is perfect as to not commit 
sin. Respectfully, that's not right. For the law of sin dwells in my flesh, and in me nothing good dwells. By the way, in that sermon, John Wesley allowed that Christians would make mistakes, but not sin. Paul writes, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. When Jesus Christ died on the cross at Calvary, it changed everything that we knew about sin and how it was dealt with. Before Christ, there was a need for atonement every year. That's what Leviticus chapter 16 was all about. But Christ's death is on the cross is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but for the whole the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation simply put means it's the payment price, paid in full. His death was not an atonement which is a simple covering over. No. His death was a propitiation just like we covered in chapter 2. Rather Jesus's death did away with the thing itself, rendering the customs of the law obsolete. But don't bog yourself down with this idea of sin in your life as you strive for perfection. Because your flesh is real and your sin is real. We should be thanking God that our sins are paid for in full by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, being a Christian is a wonderful thing. I can't think of anything in this life that I would rather be than a Christian. You see, God is so great, and he goes beyond our wildest imaginations. Five times in, this, in these first ten verses of chapter 3 alone, John points us to the fact that we are children of God. We are children. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. If you are saved by the grace of God, you are a child of God. Think about that for a moment. God has made a way for us to have fellowship with him in a way that was entirely unheard of before Jesus Christ came onto the earth. We can have fellowship with the Father as children. Mind-blowing. So we have this new identity. What are we going to do with this new identity? How are you to live as a child of God? Well, John wrote his gospel And in his gospel, 122 times, he refers to God as Father. That relationship dynamic is now Father. When he wrote this short letter of 1 John, he refers to God as Father 13 times. 
There is significance in that relationship. John had the advantage of watching Jesus for almost four years. John saw what perfection looked like and how perfection reacted in every single instance. But since you don't have that privilege, John writes to help guide you so that you would know what, it, what you are to do as a child of God. You are to be like Christ. Paul exhorts you to imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And again, he says, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. John knows you are human and you have sin dwelling in it. That is why he reminded us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When Jesus was on earth, he encountered sinners all the time. Every person he ran into was a sinner. There was a man who had been sick for 38 years. And he laid beside the pool of Bethesda. And whenever the angel would come down and stir that water, he tried to get into that water so that he could be healed, but he never could. But when Jesus saw him there, on that Sabbath day, Jesus healed that man. Afterwards, Jesus found that man in the temple. And he said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more. And remember that woman that was caught in adultery who was brought before Jesus. This woman was alone. And there was a group of men that were testing Jesus. And when they brought her to him, Jesus asked and said, or didn't ask, he told them, hey, the one that's without sin, you cast the first stone. One by one, we're told, they left that place until it was just Jesus and that woman. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Just as Jesus said to the man at the pool of Bethesda and to the adulterous woman, you are to go and sin no more. Consider the life that you live and you are choosing to live and go and sin no more. Don't accommodate sin in your life. Don't make excuses for the sin in your life. Don't blame other people for the sin in your life. Acknowledge the depravity in you. Confess your sin. Go and sin no more and imitate Christ. When your wife or your husband has wronged you, don't retaliate in anger, but demonstrate love and forgiveness as Christ would. When your children have fallen short of the expectations that you have for them, don't be disappointed in them, but rather shower them with grace and words of encouragement as Christ would. When your friend hurts you, don't become bitter, but show compassion just as Christ did. 
When your boss is demanding and putting pressure on you to perform, don't harbor resentment and sow discord within the workplace, but respond with respect and truth as Christ did, knowing that your service is for the Lord, not for that person. And if an elder has done something wrong by your account, don't spread rumors and criticize them. But pray for them as Christ would and go to them as he admonishes us to. And when it seems that God has stopped watching over you in what may be the lowest time in your life, don't respond in ra with rage and fury. Cry out to God. Cry out to him just as the psalmist would and psalmist did. And know you are not alone. Christ was not alone when he was in his darkest of times. And we can draw comfort in knowing that the Father is near and will not leave you alone. There needs to be a clear distinction in our lives as to who we are. And who we are needs to be displayed in the choices that we make in our lives. By the words that we speak. By the love that we show. In the very last parable that Jesus told... There were three servants, and they're all called before their master. Two of those three servants received the same commendation from their master when he returned. Well done, good and faithful servant. I hear people repeat that phrase as though that the culmination of their life here on earth, that's the highest honor that they could receive when they get to heaven. Well done, good and faithful servants. How do they see God? They see God as their master or they see him like he's their boss. Don't do that. That is not what we should be thinking or how we should view God. That is not what God wants. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross at Calvary, it changed the complete relationship dynamic with God. When I get to heaven, I'm looking forward to the warm welcome of a father. Welcome home, son. How precious that will be. We are children of God. Therefore, we should live as children of God, emulating Jesus who brought us into God's family by his death. I enjoy parables, and there's a, another parable that has always interested me. It's the, it pertains to the prodigal son. The prodigal son wanted to leave his father and Live as the world lives. Remember last week, John encouraged us not to identify ourselves with the world. Well, then the son got to a point in his life and he decided, I got to go home, but I'm going to go home and be treated like a servant. I'm not worthy of being a son. And that's just like the relationship that Israel had with God, isn't it? That's the way they viewed God in the Old Testament as a servant. But when that prodigal son got home, the father would have none of it. He was a son, and he was going to be treated like a son, even though he didn't always live and act like a son. We should desire to be like that son. 
who even though we sometimes act like the world or desire to be a servant, we should turn ourselves back to our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants to fellowship with us as sons and daughters, not as servants. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. That is love which transcends all of our wildest dreams. John says that he can't describe what it will be like for us, and we couldn't even comprehend it if he could describe it. So great is the love that the Father has for his children. So by way of application, just a few points. First, we need to acknowledge who we are. We need to acknowledge and recognize we are children of God. Next, we need to recognize when sin is in our lives and confess it. And finally, we need to be prepared to fight the sin which dwells in us so we can maintain that fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Can you imagine what it would be like if we all lived like we were children of God, as John exhorts us to? If we practiced righteousness and love in our lives, imagine how people would feel if they walked into this building and saw a family that loved one another. Imagine if they could see the fellowship that we have with our Heavenly Father by the way that we treat one another. What would their reaction be? We need to go out and live as children of God because that is who we are in Christ Jesus. We are children of God. Thank you for listening. I'm going to close in prayer and then the ushers can come up for the elements. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that, that you sent him to die on the cross for us. And you've changed our relationship with you and made us sons and daughters. And we can't thank you enough for that. Lord, help us to live a life imitating your son so that we can demonstrate your love to us and glorify you. We thank you in the name of your son. Amen.